Hey everybody, it's Tom Panneries, host of Pop Culture Affidavit. Right around the time I was recording and editing this episode, I got word of the death of Amanda Peterson, the actress who played Cindy Mancini in the movie Can't Buy Me Love. While this is not a huge celebrity death, she had retired from acting nearly 20 years ago and was one of the better-known where-are-they-now types. I've covered Can't Buy Me Love twice in some capacity on this show, once as a full episode, and then just recently in my uh, 50th episode. So uh, I would like to dedicate this episode, episode 51, to Amanda Peterson. Now, on with the show. A beautiful girl can make you dizzy. She can make you feel high. A beautiful girl is all-powerful, and that is as good as love. Pop Culture Affidavit episode 51. Good times never seem so good. I woke up here written how square there was noise in the hall, snow was thrown in the air, and I could see just things. And spark is a match to my first home. Some houses are built to last. It's time to pull inside and change too fast. I can see their faces looking through the glass. Not the way they belong. Hello and welcome to episode 51 of Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that covers everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. Last time around, I talked about senior year of high school with my own senior year memories and various movies that feature senior year of high school. This time, I'm kicking off a month's worth of episodes and blog posts that are dedicated to high school reunion movies. Why? Well, at the time this episode is going live, my 20th reunion will be taking place. However, I will not be able to attend, which I talked about last episode, but that doesn't mean I can't have a little fun with this. So, you're going to get two episodes and two blog posts over the course of the next few weeks. First up will be the 1996 movie, Beautiful Girls. Before that, though, I've got some emails. Haven't done emails in a while, actually, I noticed. Uh, these go all the way back to March. The first one is, the most recent, is from Mr. Mei Yi Chun. And he writes, Hi, I just wanted to let you know that I really enjoyed your podcast about the real world San Francisco and Cinder and Ash. These are two properties that I love very much and didn't think would ever be covered on any podcast, but I'm glad they were on the Two True Freaks Network. I chuckled every time you added Praise Be His Name to Jose Luis Garcia Lopez's name, but it's entirely deserved. Take it easy, Mr. Mei Yi Chun. Thanks for the email. You're not the only person who wrote me regarding the bit about Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, Praise Be His Name. I can't take credit for that as it was something that I believe was started on the Fire and Water podcast by Rob and Shag, and it kind of became a running joke in the circle of podcasters among which I find myself. This next email comes from Andy Leyland, he of Hey Kids Comics and the Palace of Glittering Delights. The subject is TV Tunes, and that's in reference to the TV theme song episode I did back in March. Andy writes, Dear Tom, just a quick note about your excellent TV themes episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. Some excellent choices, and as you say, very little in terms of similarity. 
It was nice to see WG Snuffy Walden in here. Whilst I've never seen so much as a single episode of The West Wing, the theme was suitably sweeping as one would expect from a show about the president. In fact, had you not said anything, I'd have pegged this as a Jerry Goldsmith composition. Walden's on more familiar but no less satisfying ground with my so-called life, which is a great tune. I almost considered Cheers myself, as it's truly great, and again, I make no apologies for liking I'll Be There For You, a magnificent slice of pure pop. As an aside, there's a possibly apocryphal story that goes like this. Apparently, Michael Stipe walked into an REM band meeting with a song he was really excited about and hummed or played a bit of it. Bassist Mike Mills looked at him askance and said, You're joking, right? Stipe, confused, asked why. Mills pointed out that it was, essentially, the theme to Friends. Apparently, Stipe had never seen Friends. Anyway, the sitcoms were mostly lost on me. I watched Charles and Charles largely because of the delectable Jennifer Runyon, I suspect, who went on to be in the pilot for Quantum Leap, trivia fans. She is also in one of the opening scenes of Ghostbusters. She is the uh, very attractive blonde who Dr. Venkman is having participate in the psychic testing. But the facts of life, Growing Pains, Full House, and others you mentioned were never shown or I never watched. Facts of life was catchy, though. Nice to hear Hill Street Blues, an all-time classic, and Chips, not a classic, but magnificent in its own way. And make no apologies for 90210, which is a great theme, or Baywatch, which sounds like a wonderful piece of 80s power pop inadvertently written in the 90s. You're also correct about the next-gen version of that theme, and I say pretty much the exact same thing on an upcoming episode of Palace. Shameless plug. All told, a great show. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I've been asked if I'm doing a sequel and I'm considering it. I'd love to hear you do one, too. Best, Andy. I actually replied to Andy via email, um, and here's what I wrote. I'm so glad you liked the show. I think I had originally had 20 theme songs on my list, and I narrowed it down to those 12, so I'll definitely do another episode somewhere down the line. I'm also planning on a cartoon show theme countdown. What I found funny about some of the shows I was talking about was that I watched at least a few of them, not because they were high-quality entertainment, but because they were simply always on. My sister and I would come home in the afternoon, and after cartoons were over, that's when the rerun blocks would start. Today, those channels run judge shows and TMZ and that crap, but back in the day, it would be blocks of sitcoms and maybe an hour-long drama. I watched a lot of Happy Days and Star Trek after school. Never got into Little House on the Prairie, though. And to add to that, I am planning a cartoons one as well as another music countdown at some point later this year. Andy, by the way, just released another episode of Palace of Glittering Delights featuring television themes, this one being science fiction show themes, and it's really worth checking out if you haven't done that already. I have another TV theme episode email. This one is from Professor Allen who you can find over at the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, hosting the Quarterbin Podcast, as well as co-hosting the Shortbox Showcase. And on this podcast, way back toward the beginning of the year, we sat down and talked about adaptations. He writes in saying, Tom, your TV theme song episode was a blast to listen to. You need to figure out how to do more music themes episodes. They are consistently solid among your best shows. I do have to ask you one question, though. As a matter of fact, it is the same question I asked Andy after his TV themes episode. What do you two have against the X-Files? Between the two of you, you probably talked about or played at least two dozen theme songs, and neither of you mentioned Mark Snow's spooky atmospheric song. I struggle to think of a better combination of melody, visuals, and vibe that so fits what a show is about. And no Twin Peaks either? Explain yourself, young man. 
I continue to enjoy the podcast despite these massive snubs. Funny enough, when my original list was 20 songs long, The X-Files was on it. It just did not make the cut. And and, and I will do a volume two of the list, and I'll probably do that. Uh, Twin Peaks, I actually have never seen Twin Peaks beyond a little bit here and there. Uh, I was about 12 or 13 when it came on. I didn't watch it back then, and it's on a list of, hey, I need to get around to these shows which isn't getting much shorter these days, and maybe I'll have the time then to go back through it, especially since, you know, apparently they're producing more and and the people are, like, really, really excited about it. So I might dive into that. David Lynch is a blind spot when it comes to just about anything in my popular culture. But like I said, as I mentioned in my reply to Andy, I'm definitely doing a sequel. I may have been, and I've been scribbling down cartoon themes to talk about as well as another music countdown. Look for those at some point in the late summer or fall. My next email is from Sean Engel, who of just one of the guys at Green Lantern Podcast, among other shows here on the Two True Freaks Network. He writes it about the Meatloaf episode and says, Well played, sir. Well played. Thank you, Sean. I had fun doing that, and I was hoping someone would appreciate what I did there. He does have a PS, by the way. He says, PS, I might have to try that recipe you talked about on the show. The instant French onion soup sounds like a good substitute for diced onions, but I can't stand the meatloaf when it's slabbered with ketchup slash catsup, however you spell it. Ketchup? 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 I'm in way over my head. As it overpowers the flavor of the loaf. Well, to each his own, I guess. Sean... Then again, don't take my word for it with the ketchup. I put ketchup in my eggs. Some people think I'm a freak for that. Finally, I have an email from Kirk Greenfield. He writes, Hey, just download and, quote, read much of your op-ed on banned books, comics, graphic novels, and I'm enjoying it. I'm familiar with much slash many of the works and have been intrigued to consider looking up audiobook versions to listen to while on my daily commute. In particular... I'm interested in Night by Lee Wiesel, The Outsiders, and The Great Gatsby, though I confess I had seen Robert Redford's movie version when it came out, and then again just recently when I discovered my son reading it for a college freshman class. And my older daughter is, quote, reading Watchmen for another class, and we're talking a little bit about it without me giving away too much of what's coming. Ironically, both kids were watching over my shoulder when I played the 12-part animated cartoon version off-DVD that came along with a live-action version of the movie that my wife and I had gone to the theater to see. Of course, I bought it as the original serialization came out and had treasured it enough to pick up the collected trade in good condition when it presented itself to me. The cat has just scratched the front cover to shreds, but when my daughter paid too much attention to it instead of her. But I digress. Anyway, here's a copy of both versions of our podcast promo. I hope you enjoy them and rotate them around. Kirk Greenfield, who is the co-host of the Imperious Rex Confessions of a Serial Surface Invader. And thanks for emailing, Kurt. I'm, I really hope that you did get a chance to uh, listen to and enjoy some of those some of those books. Um, some of the stuff that that I teach that, that has ended up on banned books list is some of my favorite stuff, believe it or not. And not just because it's been banned, just because it's it's their great reads. So anytime uh, I can help turn somebody on to a, a new piece of literature is uh, well worth it. And uh, what I'm going to do right now is take a break. And in fact, I'm going to play the promo for Kirk's podcast, which is Imperious Rex, Confessions of a Serial Surface Invader. And when I get back, I'm going to talk about Beautiful Girls. Do your friends tell you that you'd be perfect for cosplaying Mr. Spock all the time? 
Are you strangely attracted to women of other species and relationships that can't possibly work? Is your room a shrine to Sue Storm? Is the top of your skull inexplicably flat? Do you have tiny wings on your ankles that, defying all logic, somehow allow you to fly? Do you hear strange, disembodied voices talking to you about your destiny? Do you feel driven to make repetitive, pointless war on the surface world? Do you spend hours in the bath? Can you breathe underwater? Then you may identify with the subject of our new podcast, Imperious Rex: Confessions of a Serial Surface Invader. Longer than a whale, he can swim anywhere. He can breathe underwater and go flying through the air. Atlantis is the prince of the deep. Join us each week as we review the next installment from Prince Namor, The True Submariner's Adventures in Tales to Astonish, starting with the quest in issue 70 and moving forward through the Silver Age of Marvel Comics. Check out our blog at serialsurfaceinvaders.tumblr.com for a new show every two weeks or so and a steady stream of ridiculous aquatic content. And please, if any five or more of the above conditions apply to you, Seek professional help. They're the best of friends. Do I got anything in my stash? Be clean. Why is he here? In town for their high school reunion. I've been back exactly uh, four minutes. But they have one big problem. I want to give you this. It's brown. You buy a colored diamond for a girl you're not even seeing, man. You've been eating retard sandwiches again. <laughs> They're all falling in love. You can slip into something more comfortable. With beautiful girls. They're all sisters, Will. Trust me, they're all sisters. It's one big conspiracy. It's the must-see comedy critics are calling hilarious. Look at this. Your favorite. I'd go along with that. Yeah, that's nice, right? Well, these are Silicon City. I could hang my overcoat on them. Sexy. Can you think of anything better than making love to an attractive stranger in the middle of a frozen lake with just just a, a oil light to guide your way? I woke up here in a great comedy. What part of Chicago are you from? Do you know Chicago? Yeah, I, I know like Soldier's Field. <laughs> Siskel and Ebert give it two thumbs up. What do you want? You drooling, obsessed lunatic. Okay, that's that's fair. Matt Dillon, Academy Award winner Timothy Hutton. Rosie O'Donnell, Natalie Portman, Michael Rappaport, Academy Award winner Mira Sorvino, and Academy Award nominee Uma Thurman. You drunk? I don't know, but you both look very beautiful. A beautiful girl can make you dizzy. She can make you feel high. A beautiful girl is all powerful, and that is as good as love. He's insane. <laughs> He's obsessed. You're all obsessed. Beautiful Girls. The seriously funny hit movie from director Ted Demi. And you guys, as a gender, have got to get a grip. Otherwise, the future of the human race is in jeopardy. Released on February 9th, 1996, Beautiful Girls was directed by one-time youth MTV Raps director and director of the films You the Man and The Ref, Ted Demi, and was written by Scott Rosenberg, who also wrote Con Air and would go on to be one of the screenwriters for High Fidelity, among other films. It underperformed at the box office, only taking in $10.6 million, which made it the 122nd highest-grossing movie of 1996. It's about $3 million less than Biodome which came in at 107, but nearly a million more than Dunstan Checks In, 
which, by the way, is the Jason Alexander Monkey movie, which came in 127th place. Enough people went to see the Jason Alexander Monkey movie for it to make $9 million, by the way. The highest grossing movie, by the way, of 1996 was Independence Day, which made $306 million. Anyway, the movie Beautiful Girls stars Timothy Hutton as Willie Conway, a guy who makes his living playing piano in New York City bars and who has returned to his hometown of Knights Ridge, Massachusetts for his high school reunion. The movie's not just about Willie, however, as the film has a number of well-known actors to round out its ensemble cast. Rosenberg, who grew up in Needham, Massachusetts, wrote most of the movie during a particular bad winter in his hometown, which is where he was living while he was waiting to find out if Disney was going to pick up and produce Con Air, which of course they did, and starred Nicolas Cage. According to the film's Wikipedia page, Rosenberg says it was, quote, the worst winter ever in his small hometown. Snowplows were coming by and was just tired of writing these movies with people getting shot and killed. So I said, there's more action going on in my hometown with my friends dealing with the fact that they cannot deal with turning 30 or with commitment. All of that became Beautiful Girls. He also mentioned that there's definitely a buddy movie feel to a lot of Beautiful Girls. And there definitely is. In fact, the buddy film he mentions happens between the two sets of characters in this story, which are two intersecting groups of men and women. As I mentioned, you have Willie, played by Timothy Hutton. And there's also Tommy, who is played by Matt Dillon. He's an ex-football star who, when he was in high school, dated Darian, who's played by Lauren Holly, with whom he's currently screwing around while dating Sharon, who's played by Mira Sorvino. Now, let's set aside that one of Matt Dillon's conflicts is whether he is going to be with Mira Sorvino and Lauren Holly, which, you know, that must be really tough, Matt. And point out that he's the guy who was the superstar in high school who never went anywhere, and now he's driving around in a snowplow, plowing driveways, and then, like, you know, doing landscape in the spring. Now, nothing to say anything wrong with any of that, but it's the point's kind of driven home with that. Tommy works with Kev, who's played by Max Perlick, and Paul, who's played by Mac- Michael Rappaport. Paul is a walking id. This guy seems obsessed with centerfolds and other representations of the, quote, perfect female form, which are the beautiful girls to provide the title of the film. His ex-girlfriend is Jan, who's played by the always awesome Martha Plimpton. And Paul has reacted to them breaking up horribly. He plows a ton of snow right up against her garage on a regular basis. I mean, it's just really, really immature. We'll get to that in a minute. Noah Emmerich plays Mo, who seems to be the only one of these guys who's actually settled down and started a family and have what most of us would expect from an adult life. However, he is still a bit of a hothead and we'll see how, you know, there's still that sort of immaturity among him with his with his high school friends. Perhaps he kind of wishes he didn't jump into adulthood so quickly. His wife is played by is Sarah, who's played by and Bobby, and the two they have two kids. Rounding out the cast are Pruitt Taylor Vince's Stinky, a friend of theirs who has bought and renovated a local dive bar, which is where they hang out for uh, for much of the movie. Uma Thurman is Endera, his cousin who comes to visit from Chicago. More on that later. Rosie O'Donnell is Gina, who's a hairdresser and friend of Sharon. Natalie Portman as Marty, the girl who's moved in next door to Willie's dad. And Annabeth Gish is Tracy, who's Willie's girlfriend in New York. I'll get more into these characters as we go, and I'm going to do this a little bit differently than I usually do a movie. Usually I just give you a plot synopsis and then talk to what I liked about it and then give some of my favorite moments. I'm going to do that here for the most part, but I'm going to go light on the plot synopsis because while there is a plot, this is a very character-driven film, and it's just best to kind of talk about what I liked about it. 
So while the plot does center around the high school reunion of these characters, the reunion itself doesn't take center stage as much as it does in the other big high school reunion flicks of the time, such as Gross Point Blank or Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion, both of which would come out a year later. Instead, the real reunion is the time Willie spends in his hometown, first realizing how much has changed about his life and then trying to figure out what he wants. I'm going to leave Willie for last, though, as it's the most involved and honestly the deepest and best storyline of the whole movie. And while there are numerous characters, there really are only two other storylines running through the movie, which are that of the Tommy, Darian, Sharon situation and the Paul, Jan, X relationship. I'll start with Paul and Jan because it's clearly meant to be the most comical, the most caricature-ish. As I mentioned, Jan broke up with Paul. You know, it's probably because he's incredibly immature. The man's obsessed with the supermodels and centerfolds to the point where he has named his dog L. McPherson. I'd say it's really weird, but it's really not because I think that quite a number of the people listening to me talk about the movie or people who have seen the movie can look at Paul and see at least one guy they know who seems to be a little too into his porn. And I'm not talking about people who stop and pause to admire the female form. I'm talking about that guy in your circle of friends who never grew up and now kind of seems a little perverted. This clip basically epitomizes the character of Paul. I spoke to Jan this morning. It was obvious to both of us that she no longer cares. She ran out of a restaurant like a complete maniac, Willie, I'm telling you. But I guess once she thought about it, she didn't realize that she didn't give a shit anymore. Yeah. I spoke to Tracy. She's coming up this weekend for the reunion. Is that right? I gotta meet this girl, Tracy. You really gotta take this shit down. Why? No, I mean, you're like a serial killer. Hey, don't cap on my supermodels, Johnny. Don't go there. Leave it alone. I'm just saying it's creepy. Hey, look who's talking, Mr. Jerry Lee Lewis. Oh, no, fucking Mo. I don't judge you, okay? If she could cut her own food, she's fair game. Okay, all right. All I'm saying is you got to take all this down because because it's really, it's it's creepy and, it, Look, and it's... the supermodels are beautiful girls, Will. A beautiful girl can make you dizzy. Like you've been drinking Jack and Coke all morning. She can make you feel high, full of single greatest commodity known to man. Promise. The promise of a better day. The promise of a greater hope. Promise of a new tomorrow. This particular ore can be found in the gate of a beautiful girl, in her smile, and in her soul, and the way she makes every rotten little thing about life seem like it's gonna be okay. The supermodels, Willie, that's all they are, bottle promise. Scenes from a brand new day, hope dancing in stiletto heels. I am now going to check your freezer for human heads. A beautiful girl is all-powerful, and that is as good as love. This is the only point in the entire movie, by the way, where Michael Rappaport is really good. The rest of the film, he's... tolerable at best. And I'm not saying that Michael Rappaport is a bad actor. There are times where I just don't like him. In Beautiful Girls is about 50-50, and I think it's because in the whole Paul Jan storyline, Martha Plimpton is the one who saves it. I mean, she's awesome in just about everything I've seen her in. She makes 200 cigarettes, for instance. And basically, she plays not a bitchy girlfriend or a cuckolding wife or any of those stereotypes, but someone who has basically gotten sick of his shit and walked away. 
He's taking it about as mature as you'd expect it. He, he, he tries to propose with her uh, with a diamond ring that is champagne in color, but it seriously just looks brown, and everybody's like, why are you giving her a brown diamond? And she turns him down because he's like, look, just accept the fact that it's over. Accept the fact that I moved on. In fact, she starts. she's going out with this guy who works at a local meat packing plant, and he's just incredibly jealous. Jealous to the point where he, where when, when Andira walks into town, he asks her out. And the reason she agrees to go out with him is because it's clearly that he just wants to be with her at the same place Jan and this guy Victor are to make Jan jealous. And honestly, it's the only reason that Andira agrees to go on the date. But then, like, they're dancing... Because she's like, you know, let's make him, let's give him something to, you know, really talk about. And he makes a move on her, and she's just like, okay, no, this is done. And and she storms, and, and Deer storms out of the bar. And it's all behavior that is, well, it's right out of a bratty high schooler's playbook. And Paul, again, just like a number of other characters in this film, is clearly stuck there. It's clearly his mentality. It's not until the very end of the movie he realizes what an idiot has been. A realization that's symbolized, by the way, by his plowing the snow away from Jan's garage door instead of piling it all up there just to be a dick. And this is sometime after finding out that Jan and Victor have gotten engaged. It's a subplot, so it's not central. Dare I say it, it's the weakest part of the film. And it might not have needed to be there, to be honest with you. Although, I will say that because Paul's obsessed with centerfolds, and he's putting Jan through all of this bullshit and all that, it gives Rosie O'Donnell's Gina to give what is quite possibly one of the best monologues ever. At one point toward the middle of the movie, she's out in town with Tommy and, and Willie, and they head to the local drugstore. Hey, you're both fucking insane. You want to know what your problem is? MTV, Playboy, and Madison fucking Avenue. Yes, let me explain something to you, okay? Girls with big tits have big asses. Girls with little tits have little asses. That's the way it goes. God doesn't fuck around. He's a fair guy. He gave the fatties big, beautiful tits. And the skinnies, little, tiny nibblers. It's not my rule. You don't like it, call him. Hey, Mitch. Oh, guys, look what we have here. Look at this. Your favorite. Oh, you like that? I'd go along with that. Yeah, that's nice, right? Well, it doesn't exist, okay? Look at the hair. The hair is long, is flowing, it's like a river. Well, it's a fucking weave, okay? And the tits. Please, I could hang my overcoat on them. Tits by design were invented to be suckled by babies. Yes, they're purely functional. These are Silicon City. And look, my favorite, the shaved pubis pubic hair being so unruly and all. Very key. This is a mockery. This is a sham. This is bullshit. Implants, collagen, plastic, cap teeth, the fat sucked out, the hair extended, the nose fixed, the bush shape. These are not real women, all right? They're beauty freaks. And they make all us normal women with our wrinkles, our puckered boobs, hi, Bob, our cellulite feel somehow inadequate. Well, I don't buy it, all right? But you fucking mooks, you think if there's a chance in hell that you'll end up with one of these women, you don't give us real women anything approaching a commitment. It's pathetic. I don't know what you think you're going to do. You're going to end up 80 years old drooling in some nursing home. Then you're going to decide it's time to settle down, get married, have kids. What are you going to find a cheerleader? Charge it, Mitch. I think you're oversimplifying. Oh, eat me. Look at Paul. 
with his models on the wall, his dog named Elle McPherson. He's insane. He's obsessed. You're all obsessed. If you had an ounce of self-esteem, of self-worth, of self-confidence, you would realize that as trite as it may sound, beauty is truly skin deep. And you know what? If you ever did hook one of those girls, I guarantee you'd be sick of her. Yeah, I suppose I'd get sick of her after about, what, 20 or 30 years? Hmm. Get over yourself. Thank you, Mitch. What? Say hello to Gertrude. No matter how perfect the nipple, how supple the thigh, unless there's some other shit going on in the relationship besides the physical, it's gonna get old, okay? And you guys, as a gender, have got to get a grip. Otherwise, the future of the human race is in jeopardy. What was that? I have to wait for you, Pete? I don't know. You could slow down. Great ass. Nice tits. Come on, let's go. I mean, how can you not listen to that like three or four times? It's so well-timed. It's so dead-on. It always makes me laugh hysterically. What's even better is that if you watch the clip, it's all the stuff that's happening on screen while she's ranting, which is basically she's shopping at a, free, at a drugstore for various health and beauty aids. And granted, it's a set piece that's designed for her to be able to pick a penthouse off of a newsstand and say, you know, all the things about, you know, the tits, the the, the pubic hair and all that. But I'll excuse that deliberate piece because it's so good. It's just, I honestly think this is right up there with some of the best monologues in movie history because Rosie O'Donnell, just the accent, the timing, the wit, just the... The, the way that Matt Dillon and Timothy Hutner are standing there just kind of like following her along and and are just kind of like, all right, what the hell am I listening to half the time? It it just, it, it really belongs up there. And I know that sounds like, you know, hyperbole, but I honestly think it deserves that. And Gina's role in the entire movie is supporting. It's this rant. And the fact that she's kind of a voice of reason who doles out wisdom or advice like this, no matter how crass it might be, it shows through during some of the beauty parlor counseling she has with Sharon, who's dating Tommy, and seems to really love the guy, but as I mentioned, is she's treated kind of like complete crap. Um, not like by him, he's not like abusive or an asshole or anything, he's just going behind her back with Darian. And this is a situation that's the biggest source of drama among this group of friends, especially with the with the guys. And it's typical of a small town high school of a small town high school quote crew. It's an expression my parents used to use all the time. Hey, look! Oh, that's the whole crew. Like, I've never been part of a crew. Nah, anyway, this crew, by the way, has not mentally left high school, as I've mentioned, and it's kind of a recurring theme. And I'll keep bringing it up, but it's a motif. It's a motif of the film. And the plot about Tommy and Darian and Sharon goes like this. Back in high school, Tommy was the big football hero. Darian was Tommy's girlfriend. And all things pointed to them being together forever because, you know, Brenda and Eddie and all that. High school sweethearts. At some point, they broke up. She married Steve and they have a daughter. The exact circumstances and timeline of this, by the way, are not fully explained. But it's been 10 years and it's definitely long enough to have broken up with your high school boyfriend, gotten married, and had a kid because her daughter looks to be about four or five years old. What is important is that Darian is married with a daughter, and she's unhappy in that marriage. And she expresses that unhappiness by hooking up with Tommy, 
who's not innocent at all of this situation, by the way, even if he's trying to not really screw up his relationship with Sharon. Sharon's very devoted and she's doting, and while her friends tell her to just forget Tommy and move on, she decides to do the complete opposite. She throws Tommy this big birthday surprise party, and Darian, who was not invited, just shows up and she's drunk. So what he does is he takes her home, she makes a move on him, and he does turn her down, but when he tries to patch things with Sharon after that, She's finally had enough, and it's too late, and she breaks up with him. Sometime later, Darian and Tommy meet at the library, and she asks him to go to the reunion with her, claiming that things will be like they were before, but Tommy turns that down as well. Darian goes to the reunion alone, and as she's signing in, she's confronted by a guy who she doesn't remember, but he remembers her, and he talks about his weight problem and how her and her friends used to make fun of him all the time. And she's basically like, he's basically like, you know, you were really hot in high school, but man, you were a bitch. And he just walks away. The storyline has a climax in a fight. Tommy runs into Steve at Stinky's bar. The two have a drink, and then confrontation which ends up with Steve and his buddies beating the absolute crap out of Tommy. The guys all come to Tommy's aid and head over to Steve's house. Steve calls his friends, but Willie rams their car into a huge snowbank before they can have a chance to get out and do anything. Mo, who's incredibly pissed off that anyone could do that to his friend, is about to beat the crap out of Steve when Steve and Darian's daughter comes to the door and asks what's wrong, so he can't go through with it. At the end of the movie, Sharon's in the hospital watching over Tommy. Like I said, this is the, quote, drama in town storyline, which I'm pretty sure would have happened with or without Willie there. Willie plays a very small role in this whole thing, but for the most part, I've always gotten the sense that he's the observer here, seeing what life would be like in Knight's Ridge if he had stayed or if he will remain there after, you know, the reunion has come and gone. When I reviewed The Waiting Place in episode 49, I talked about the book's epilogue, where Jill goes back to Northern Plains with her friends for her 21st birthday, and after they get some drinks and Scott makes a move on her, she drives away quickly, saying, This town, it's a graveyard. What Rosenberg and Demi do here is show a group of men and women, both, but honestly, mostly men, in that same scenario, but since they're all approaching 30 and aren't still teenagers, giving the opportunity to free themselves from that or avoid it. Which is a long way of saying that these people simply need to grow the hell up. Cue the Mellencamp, I come from a small town. And just like I said, I know guys like Paul, I know guys like these groups of people. I know the type of guys who actually go and fight someone because of some perceived slight or I don't know whatever reason I also know guys like Tommy who are essentially a Springsteen lyric when you're 18 it's more okay than not to pick fights with people who piss you off I guess I don't know I, I mean I don't think I've been in a legitimate fight since I was about 13 years old to be honest with you and I'm sure that if I was ever confronted by anyone like that I'd give them that sort of are you kidding me with this shit you're pathetic look but really, when you're in your late teens and early 20s, it's a bit more acceptable than when you're nearly 30 and have kids. That, by the way, is what Mo realizes in a scene that's pretty well done. They're all this pre-reunion party, and the whole scene with Tommy and Steve is, you know, happening over at the bar. Because what Steve does is, you know, he he's like, you know, he basically lets Tommy know that he knows about Tommy and Darian, and then he's like, let's take this outside, and 
And Tommy's, you know, giving Steve his 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 licks, and all of a sudden, one of them, Steve picks up a rock, and then his friends show up, and they hold him, and Steve just beats the shit out of Tommy. So they get the call, and this is the reason that nobody actually does make it to the high school reunion in the movie, which is the whole reason Willie's actually in town to begin with, but this movie is less of a high school reunion movie and more of a just reunion with friends movie so Mo gets pissed off and Sarah his wife doesn't really do anything to stop him and it's it's pretty in line with her character she's Mo's high school sweetheart she's probably been on the sidelines for a number of instances like this and instead of being a voice of research she's really passive in fact you get the feeling throughout the movie that Sarah's just there She's like the fifth, constantly the fifth wheel in the overall group dynamic. So the guys get to Steve's house, and Mo, toward the end of the scene, has Steve by the collar. He's about really about to just lay into him, and that's when the daughter shows up. And it's kind of a cliche at this point to do something like that, but at the same time, someone needed to tell Mo, well, someone needed to tell both Mo and Steve, that there's more at stake these days than the, quote, respect you need to uphold when you greasers and socias rumble together. Noah Emmerich, by the way, is the reason this scene doesn't look too cliche or get too maudlin or whatever, because his reaction is more of a, what the hell am I doing here? That's a little more subtle than how I think a number of people would have played it. I give the actors as well as the director a lot of credit for doing things like that in this movie where it could have become very, very cliche very quickly. And honestly, this whole story, defending your friend and, and all of this back and forth between the guys, is the real buddy movie, the, which is what Rosenberg had mentioned when he was interviewed. But the buddy scene, I think, if you're thinking about this movie and you know it well, that, that most people think of, or at least remember, or at least that the marketing people knew they wanted you to remember, because it was the tagline on the poster, was this. Please, piano. We can't compete with that. You can always show how you spread mulch. That's awful sexy. Stinky's cousin. This is related. Touching hands, reaching out, touching me, touching me. 
I'm honestly hot and cold on sing-along scenes in movies. Sometimes they're flat-out amazing. Almost Famous comes to mind. Sometimes they're meh. Like this one. Yeah, it's it comes about because Andera is in the bar. She she's you pour some shots. She finds out Whitley plays piano, and and he goes over to play the piano. And the guys are just like, "Oh man, we can't compete with that." And yeah, I remember being in a number of bars in my twenties, early twenties, when I would go back home for say Thanksgiving or something, go out with friends, and piano man comes on and we all start singing at the top of our lungs probably annoying everybody else in the bar stop looking at me like that i grew up on long island so yeah it's not unrealistic it just seems forced to me and maybe it's because i cannot stand sweet caroline cannot stand it hate that song i mean i've never been much of a fan of neil diamond Cherry Cherry is probably one of the few songs of his I really like that wasn't covered by the Monkees. But any shot I had at liking Sweet Caroline was completely destroyed when I was in college. I had to hear the song played at like parties and social functions and college dances and bars. And then my friends who I would be out with would get all excited and rush to the room and sing along and do that so good, so good, so good during the chorus, and ah, see also Jimmy Buffett, by the way, anyway, let's get back to the movie, and to Tommy, and Darian, and Sharon, the hometown love triangle, which is very high school, it's very high school crap, and it's meant to be. It, 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 you watch it, and you start off. You start off by having specific feelings for all three of these characters. You shake your head at Tommy. You think Darian's a bitch, and you feel really bad for Sharon. At the end of the movie, though, you feel bad for all three of them on some level or another, and you realize that no one person is responsible for what's going on. Now, you think this because of the way the film is cast and the way it's directed. Ted Demi isn't always subtle. That's compounded by the fact that they cast and costume Mira Sorvino, who is gorgeous, by the way, to look a little more, I don't want to say frumpy per se, but they definitely want her to look like, oh, the nice, cute blonde. Lauren Holly is... Lauren Holly's character could have been played by Christina Hendricks if they were shooting this now. I mean, it's the sexy redhead. The Vixen. And that scene at the reunion where former fat guy tells her off is definitely meant to see that on the surface is, oh, Darian gets what's coming to her. The mean girl can't be the mean girl anymore. But upon closer inspection, it's actually a lot more layered than this. First of all, Darian isn't in love with Tommy. She's in love with the idea of it. She's incredibly unhappy in her marriage. And Tommy is this hit of nostalgia. So she's like, oh, why did I ever break up with you? And it's very rare, by the way, that someone gets a chance to take a shot at his or her one big regret. So when she sees this chance, she takes it. With a guy who is still so stuck in his personality from high school that he jumps in without realizing the consequences. His affair with Darian is the worst kept secret in town. 
Which is why Steve confronts him out of nowhere. I mean, it's not like there's some sort of, he walks in on her and now I have to confront him. It's like, no, everybody knows that Tommy and Darian are screwing on the side. And Sharon's upset, too. For good reason. Of course, Sharon could heed her friend's advice and dump the guy, but Sharon's so much of a doormat that she kind of turns and hopes that Tommy will come around and then throws that party, and it takes him leaving the party she threw for him with Darian for Sharon to be like, what am I doing? Tommy gets the shit kicked out of him, and that makes makes him realize what a mess he's involved in. And Darian... It's that moment in the reunion that is supposed to be the wake-up. For all intents and purposes, Darian thinks she's still in high school. She still thinks she's the queen, the hot girl, the one everybody wants with the hot boyfriend. And everyone in there probably left high school behind. And it's even more pathetic when you work backwards from that moment. And one of the right previous to that scene... She's in a library with Tommy saying, oh, we should go to the reunion together and be like old times. Her daughter is sitting right there, you know, reading and drawing and things. And and at one point the daughter says something. She's like, okay, that's nice, honey. So she's like ignoring the daughter so that she can get with the guy. And it's sad, really. And I think you're supposed to get the sense that after that, Darian realizes she has to confront all of the problems she's made worse. She can't hide behind whatever she's doing with Tommy. Just as Tommy literally has some sense knocked into him. You hope that Sharon has decided not to be that much of a doormat, even though she goes back to Tommy. And I'm not sure of that. that. Her character could have been developed a little bit more. Because her sitting by Tommy's hospital bed just seems to serve as a moment where, for him, where it's kind of a, hey, jackass, the girl who was there for you when you broke three ribs is the one you want to be with, not the girl who has, whose husband broke those three ribs. You know, that sort of moment. And it's a strong storyline. It has a, not a happy, happy ending, just a good resolution. But it's not what makes the movie memorable. In fact, Beautiful Girls would have been a bad ripoff of The Big Chill if the Tommy, Darian, Sharon storyline was the central plot. But superseding that is Willie and his romance with Natalie Portman. Anyone who hasn't seen this movie is now shaking his or her head and wondering if I just said that Timothy Hutton's character has a romance with a 13-year-old Natalie Portman. The answer to that is no. Not really. But in a sense, yes. Yes. Start from the beginning, which takes place in whatever bar in New York that Willie's been playing this week. He collects his tips, he buys bus tickets, he heads home to Massachusetts. When he gets home after reconnecting with Mo, Tommy, and Kevin, some of the other guys, the first thing he has to do with the fact that his father, who's played by Richard Bright from the Godfather movies, really hasn't been the same since Mom died. And his teenage brother, Bobby, who's played by David Arquette, is a slacker who sleeps in half the morning away and... I don't know. There's this sense of pause. We get the feeling that being home feels very heavy for Willie, especially as to navigate his old house and the ghosts that are contained within. But at the same time, we get the sense that by coming home for the reunion, he's also running away from whatever life he had back in New York City. He's been non-committal when it comes to Tracy. When she finally shows up, and my crush on Annabeth Gish, which began with Mystic Pizza, is confirmed. 
She's not exactly a screeching harpy who's screaming for an engagement ring. In fact, the problem is the whole time, it's it's Willie. He just can't make up his mind about anything. Complicating this is Marty. She's 13, but she seems way older, and Willie seems almost immediately smitten by her, especially her intelligence and her wit. You grew up here? Yeah. Yeah. Don't visit much? Nope. Mom dead? You a cop? No. Yeah, my mother's dead. I knew it. Your dad's kind of a sad guy. Your brother's kind of missing that thing, that thing that having a mom gives you. It's a lonely house you got, you don't mind me saying. What's your name? Marty. As in Martha? As in Marty. Name for a grandfather I never even knew, Martin. So now I'm Marty. Just Marty, a girl named Marty. It is, I think, the bane of my existence. Mm. Hmm. How old are you? Thirteen. Ah. But I'm an old soul. <laughs> so why'd you come back? Ah, uh, well... Uh, my high school reunion. Heavy. Yeah. So what's your name? Uh, Willie. Willie, I like your burns. <laughs> Thanks. You're kind of cool. How do you mean? I don't know. <laughs> it's just a call. You don't think you are? Uh, I, um... No, I, I think I, I think I am. You are, I think. Yeah? Maybe not. <laughs> I'm gonna go. <laughs> yeah, I'll see you around. Marty. For Willie, his back and forth with Marty is refreshing. And then it leads to a weird infatuation. He actually at one point wonders if it would work out if he waited for her to grow up. She outright has a crush on him. And when Tracy shows up, it's actually pretty devastating to her. But by that point, Willie has been able to sort things out. That comes via one night out with Andera. She comes to the bar where he's drowning his sorrows. And he gets her to come to his friend's ice fishing shack in the middle of a local lake. You know how it is, the beginnings, when you first fall in love and you can't eat, you can't sleep, and getting a call from her, it makes your day. It's like, uh, it's like she's seeing a shooting star. It's the best. Yeah, but inevitably, it goes away, quiets down. So th th this is my thing, see? Why get married now? Why, why not have two, three more of those beginning things before I, you know, settle into the big fade? The big fade? It's an awful way to put it. She's coming tomorrow. Hmm. That's obvious. I got no feeling about that. I mean, I got a feeling of overwhelming ambivalence. But I would, I would rather dread her arrival than not give a shit either way. Look, I, 
I look at you and I think it's amazing that there's a guy out there that gets to do all kinds of things with you and gets to make you happy and, and, and spend evenings with you. Make me martinis. Listen to Van Morrison. To smell your skin. After a day at the beach. Yeah, and read the papers. On a Sunday morning. A rainy Sunday morning. And, and, and pepper your belly with baby kisses. Sorry. <laughs> thing is, there's a guy out there that thinks the same thing about Tracy. And he's jealous of you. You getting to do all that with her. Let me ask you something. I mean, can you think of anything better than making love to an attractive stranger in the middle of a frozen lake with just, just a, a oil light to guide your way? Can you think <laughs> of anything better? Going back to Chicago. Ice cold martini. Van Morrison. Sunday papers, got you. I gotta go, Willie. Hey, uh, why, why is I feel I'll never see you again? You'll see me again. Yeah, he's hitting on her in the scene, of course, and it, she, he gets shot down. But I've always seen something much, much deeper in the interactions that Willie and Adira have in the movie, and that's because of Marty. Years ago, on one of my older blogs, I uh, reviewed this, and I pointed out that I always thought that Adira was basically Marty, but grown up. And this is Willie running into a 20-something Marty, and her being leagues ahead of him. Plus, and I'm going to be a total guy here, so bear with me, Uma Thurman is smoking hot in this movie. I mean, in my mind, like, hotter than Mia Wallace, Uma Thurman. Just unbelievably just gorgeous. There's a line in there. It's like, look at it. A girl like that's born with a boyfriend. It, she embodies what they want her to embody for the movie. Like, she's that sort of, oh my God, just everybody drops everything when she walks in and, and, She's so aware of it, and yet knows that. She's aware of it, she knows it, and therefore does, uses it to not lord over everybody, but just is very cool. And that even just makes her even more sexy in this movie. It's just, it's, it's really just, wow. But my point about her character, more or less being this 20-something Marty, is that Natalie Portman will essentially grow up to be her. And I, I think it's true to a certain extent. Um, because the last time I did any sort of in-depth thing in that blog entry was probably about 10 years ago, maybe even earlier than that. So, you know, things change upon rewatches with time. And upon this rewatch, I've also come to think it's possible that he also seems something of Marty in Tracy. And a lot of what his storyline is in the movie is his realizing this and while having a moment of maturity, as many others do. There's this line in that conversation that I just played where Willie talks about the feeling of new. And again, that just reflects that stuck in high school, maturely 20 sort of mentality that, oh, I don't want to settle down. I want new. And you're like, yeah, but since Andre, there is the outsider. She doesn't buy it. In fact, after all that, she just kind of, she skips town. She's like, she goes back to Chicago, back to be with a boyfriend, you know, and then Tracy shows up, and it's like Willie's reset button has been hit. It's like, oh, yeah. Like, like he'd put Tracy out of his mind for a weekend 
and when she comes back, it's like he has that sort of should have had a V8 moment about it or something. And that sounds like I'm simplifying it, and I probably am. But at the same time, I think a lot of people, men and women, by the way, have moments like that in relationships or or with others. And this whole storyline, by the way, would have been absolutely awful if not for the actors involved. In fact, if I have one criticism of the storyline, it's that they just didn't give Annabeth Gish enough to do, uh, which is a little bit of a nitpick. But Timothy Hutton, whom at that point I'd only seen in Ordinary People, is so weathered, uh, it looks like he's been spending years playing in piano bars. I mean, you can almost see the smell of stale cigarettes, cheap whiskey, and beer. And that's a compliment. I mean, he plays, and he plays Willie's infatuation with Marty as one that's innocent and confused without stepping over the line to, quote, leering pervert. And I think it helps that Natalie Portman is perfect as Marty. Well, Portman has played roles that are all about her being sexy. I think closer comes to mind. She's not Lolita in this movie. And yes, there is a reference to Nabokov in in one of the conversations that Willie has with Mo. Marty's too smart to be that, though. Marty always seems like... In fact, Marty seems like a kid who's too smart for her own good. And she's incredibly innocent. She doesn't necessarily know what to do with the way she feels. She's not Alicia Silverstone in The Crush. She has a crush on Willie, but the the fact that neither of them never crossed that line is what makes this work so well. And 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 Portman plays this so genuinely that when they have the conversation after Tracy has arrived and Marty's Marty's heart breaks because she realizes, you know, she does the math in her head and she's like, "Oh, wow, well, she he's got the girlfriend and I'm not going to be with him and they have this conversation that you know injects the reality into whatever the two of them have together and it's it's sweet and, and it's heartbreaking And Juliet, the dyslexic version. What are you doing? Just another exciting Saturday night. Yeah, you got so many exciting Saturday nights in your future. Yeah. Yeah. So your lady's here, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I saw her. She she's really pretty. She's okay. She's not as pretty as you, though. Kind of got that boob thing going for her, though. And she can get into R-rated movies. Two words not in her vocabulary. Lunch money. (laughs) Hey, Marty. I hope we stay in touch. Because I hope to learn someday about what you're doing. Because I think 
whatever it is, it will be amazing. I really do. Thank you. You got it. Hottenness Willie is, is really, he's really trying to let her down easy in this scene. And he's trying to be nice and, and, and it works. And I honestly think he wants to keep in touch with her. He thinks, not because he thinks he has a shot at her in 10 years. It's just because she will be fascinating to know. And Portman has Marty sort of seeing through this. But at the same time, while she's very smart, she hasn't grown up enough to navigate the emotional swamp that's a crush like this, as well as the inevitable heartbreak that comes. This whole storyline is what makes this movie. Otherwise, like I said, it would be a third-rate big chill. But Hutton, Portman, and Demi give it what it needs to be the thing that makes beautiful girls stand out. This is uh, one at some point or another gets a round of cable reruns. You may come across it at random, which is how I actually first saw it back in the late 90s. Luckily for all of you, it's streaming on Netflix, and you can also find it on Amazon as well as YouTube. Uh, The running time is just shy of two hours, which is a little longer for a comedy from this era, but it works and doesn't feel like it's dragging, except in a few places. It's a really, really good movie to watch if anybody's feeling nostalgic for the 90s. Rosenberg would go on to develop a sort of semi-sequel show to this uh, called October Road, I believe. It aired on ABC for about a season and a half or two seasons. I think it had about a 19 or 20 episodes and was took place in the same town and I think was based more on the fact of uh, more on him returning home after the, the the movie came out and people kind of how they reacted to that and then and then sort of drama ensuing between people in his hometown and old girlfriend and that sort of stuff. I've actually never seen the whole show. I've seen bits and pieces of it. I think it is available on DVD or for streaming. Um, and it's not essential to watch if you're watching Beautiful Girls, but I may check it out. Uh, if it's worth an episode, I might bring it up or, or post about it. But uh, Beautiful Girls itself, like I said, go on Netflix, go on Amazon, YouTube, wherever you can find it. Sit down for a couple of hours and watch it. It's well worth your time. What's next for me? Well, you can go to the blog for the next couple of weeks to see me take a look at both Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion and Since You've Been Gone. Then, after another DC Comics episode, if everything works out the way I want it to, I should be doing Gross Point Blank. If that doesn't work out, I'll have something else. But until then, thanks for listening, and take care. You have reached the end of another episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. All music, clips, and other material used in this podcast are the property of their respective copyright holders, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, show notes, and essays on other topics random in the world of popular culture can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. 
Feedback can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Affidavit also has a Facebook page, and you can like the podcast at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. This podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts, which is the division of the Demanzacor of Milan, Italy. You can download this podcast and many other great podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Want to support this and the other Two True Freaks podcasts? Go to twotruefreaks.com and click the Amazon.com link. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening and come back next time for some more pop culture randomness.